This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour today. I'm Cassie Hub with you across South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, this weekly cycle of rain continues and once again, there's been some quite high totals across the state and into the far west of New South Wales. While some areas are still lapping it up, many of you are also wanting the tap to turn off just for a little while. I think um, actually some people might have actually received the most rain in October they've ever seen. So I'd be interested to know what your totals have been. You can Call me on zero one three hundred triple two eight nine one, or send me a text zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Weekend totals, or even your entire October totals, I'd be interested to hear on the program just to see where the rain has really been falling. Uh, even far west people um, in New South Wales might be ready to say the drought there is over. You know, every week, even if it's just five mil, we've got something, and you know our the eargrass is, you know, up to my knees and, you know, I've just never seen so much feed and, and the length of the grass before. I'll have more on what's happening rain-wise in the far west of New South Wales. Also tell you what albedo breakdown is. I hadn't heard of it, uh, but it's a bit of a problem in the Riverlands. More on that soon. But first up today, Russia's decision to pull out of a UN brokered deal to allow grain exports from Ukraine is likely to mean less grain on the world market. And that means a more bullish outlook for grain prices. Dennis Bosnesensky is an analyst with Rabobank. He says if the deal is over, it will have short and long-term consequences. The first one is that there'll simply be less grain available in the market in the short term because Ukraine won't be able to export. But in the longer term, it means that if Ukraine's produce has nowhere to go, then the farmers have no incentive to, for example, plant a lot of grain next season uh, to harvest that because there'll be nowhere to sell it. So both short and long-term consequences if this deal is actually fully cancelled. Now, how long was the deal meant to last? Because do we have a clear point when the deal is over? Is it over from now or is it up until the the end of the deal? Well, the deal is meant to end on the 19th of November. And the question is now, because there hasn't been enough clarity on it, has the deal been cancelled already so Ukraine can't export from today? Or does it mean that Russia just simply won't re-sign once it gets to the 19th of November? The one Date to keep an eye on is the G20 summit in Bali on the 15th of November, where Russia is meant to have representation. So that could be a place where theoretically they could negotiate another deal. So it may still happen, but if it doesn't, it could be quite significantly bullish uh, for world markets. So was the, the expectation that this deal that finished on the 19th of November would be renewed or extended? Look, from my perspective, since the very beginning, I've been surprised that the deal actually went ahead because you have to keep in mind, these are two countries which are fighting each other, actively sending missiles at one another and for, for a grain deal to exist. To, to me, it was surprising. So I can't say it's, I'll use the term again, surprising that the deal for now could be over. I will have to wait and see what happens uh, in the coming weeks. Does that mean no grain gets out of Ukraine from this point on? No, not necessarily. So I was just speaking to our UK colleagues and they said, that the infrastructure that Ukraine's been building uh, over land, so rail and road, has improved significantly over the last few months. And they said, theoretically, 
Ukraine could export around half of their uh, grain exports just over land. But we'll have to wait and see if that actually turns out to be the case. All right. As you said earlier, Dennis, this does have implications for grain prices. What do you see in the short and longer term then as far as those prices go? Well, globally, I think if they can't reach a deal, that, that that's bullish. But locally, it, it's an interesting situation. So initially, I was thinking, okay, we're going to harvest. This was before we had the East Coast floods, before we had the storms in WA over the weekend. Everything was looking like we're going to have a lot of crop around. It's all going to be harvested very quickly, and it's going to put a pressure on pricing. But now, not only is there global bullish factors, for example, the deal in Ukraine, uh, the deal in Ukraine falling apart, but locally, because we have uh, delayed harvest on the East Coast, we have damage from the excess rain and and floods, uh, we could see some sustained price side moving further than I thought. So I thought once harvest starts, that, that, that'll put a lid on pricing, but maybe that window will be pushed out a bit. Mm. And how much movement do you see there? Look, it, it's, it's hard to say. When Before the floods on the East Coast, we were expecting an average 12-month price of around 390 to 420 per tonne uh, track or free and stored for, for the West Coast. Evidently, those prices are higher now because of what's been happening. And with the Ukraine grain deal, well, prices on Chicago Board of Trade are likely to rally today. We're going to have to wait and see if they're sustained, but surely part of that will move over here to Australia. Now, if, for example, we get to the 15th of November during the G20 summit and Russia comes out with Ukraine and says, okay, we have another grain deal, those gains can be reversed quite quickly. Rubber Bank's Dennis Vosnesensky speaking with Belinda Varischetti about uh, what could be happening in the Black Sea region and the impact that could have on grain prices. Now, this rain could have a bit of an impact as well. A lot of grain producers are not particularly uh, excited about the thought of uh, more uh, inches of rain that that, uh, have fallen potentially over the weekend. If you have had a bit of rain, text me 0467 922891 or phone 1300 222891. The pastoral regions, though, are still revelling in getting this consistent soaking rain. Some graziers say they've started to receive continuous rain for weeks, which has been a new lease of life for their land. Yusuf Saudi spoke with Sonia O'Connor from Floods Creek Station, which is about 130 kilometres northwest of Broken Hill, about how much rain has fallen there. Yeah, so obviously the drought, you know, we had no water or um, any feed. We had um, lots of uh, stock loss and we had to send a lot of our sheep away on adjustment um, because we had nothing here for them, basically. So this rain has given us a whole new (laughs) uh, lease of life, so to say. You know, we've got all, we're fully stocked now. Yeah, we're just about to bring our last lot of sheep back home. The best we've ever seen this country for many, many years. Well, I've never seen it anything like this, and neither has my husband. He's been around this area um, longer than I have. So when you say, you know, it's some of the best time you've seen this land in, in your 10 years of being at Flood Creek Station, how does this compare? Yeah, right. So I sort of came to the area in the worst of the drought, um, where it was pretty much just um, dirt and stones. And then in 2010, we got a break. Um, That's when the drought, the big drought broke. Um, And the rain, um, we got a lot of rain, but it was not as spread out as it has been for us this year. So, you know, we'd get a lot one month and then there'd be a few months where we'd get nothing. Whereas 
this year it's just been consistent. So, you know, every week, even if it's just five mil, we've got something. And, you know, our beer graph is, you know, up to my knees. And, you know, I've, I've just never seen so much feed and, and the length of the graph before. So, yeah, it's been exceptional this year. And when you say every week, how many weeks is that, do you reckon? I think for the last couple of months, yeah, we've had something. You know, like I said before, you know, it could just be five mil one day and the following week, you know, it could be another five mil, but it all adds up. So this, just this October, we've got uh, all up, I think it's about 120 millimetres. Uh, and that's, you know, over the period of weeks. So we haven't had a huge um, drop of rainfall in one day like some other places. Our country, I feel, is a lot more productive um, that way than rather than one heavy rain and, yeah, that's it. <laughs> With the rain that you received, so you, it was about 28 millimetres, is that right? Yeah, yeah, this morning we got 28 millimetres all up. Um, I think they're still predicting storms this afternoon, so we'll have to... Wait and see what we get. But, um, yeah, it wasn't very heavy raining. It was very light, steady rain, which is perfect soaking rain, exactly what we needed. (laughs) Yeah, and so how have you been able to work around the rain and your sheep in this time? Well, it's been a long progress. Um, So we had started landmarking last week, but we've been held, we're actually supposed to start a few weeks ago, but have been held up because of the rain. Um, of course, because with all this moisture around, it has, you know, caused a few dramas with the fly getting into the sheep. So we've had um, quite a few fly-blown sheep in the mob um, that have been crutched. And, you know, I, you know, there's been obviously a few deaths as well. But that, I suppose, comes with any good season. Yeah, so we are running behind in schedule with the rain, but, you know, hey, that's <laughs> still better than the yeah, what we had to go through with the drought. So I will take that any day. Sonia O'Connor speaking with Yusuf Saudi there. And uh, if you've been receiving some rainfall, let me know. Text 0467 I'd be interested to know if this has been your wettest October because uh, there are some results coming in that, that it could be in some parts of the far west of New South Wales. Angus White from Wyndham Station uh, runs sheep, goat and cattle in uh, Anna Branch South. And uh, he says that this October could be one of the wettest months his property has seen in decades. I've also got a text in from Borough saying 35 millimetres fell there in the last day or so and at Bubarawi 28 millimetres as well. So some decent falls there in that uh, upper mid-north area and I'd love to know further afield where rain has also fallen. Now while we were talking about the the far west of New South Wales, uh, a Broken Hill grazier author and agricultural scientist has added another prestigious award to her list. Anika Molesworth has received the Young Conservationist of the Year Award at the Australian Geographic Society Awards and she spoke with Andrew Schmidt about why she's so passionate about conservation and advocating for climate change action. Yeah, so about six years ago, we, um, a group of farmers around Australia, we formed an organisation called Farmers for Climate Action, 
We now have about 8,000 farmers part of that group, 35,000 non-farmers. These people are leading the way in conversations around how do we reduce emissions and benefit rural communities as we do so. Um, I've also been, you know, I've written a book. I do lots of speaking and workshops about these issues. And I find people both in urban and rural environments are really interested. They want to know how do we eat healthy foods? How do we look after beautiful environments which we are surrounded by? Um, And this is absolutely critical because, as we know, we have seen a lot of environmental upset in the last months years. You know, we've seen floods before that. We've had bushfires before that. We've had droughts. And we know that climate change increases the frequency and the impact of extreme weather events like this. So it's really important that we have these conversations of how do we actually deal with a problem like climate change and how do we continue to produce nutritious, delicious food to feed everyone. Uh, You mentioned the group you formed, the Farmers for Climate Action, and the the thousands that have joined that. Uh, What's the response been like from uh, those around the far west? Yeah, it's been really good because out here in the far west, you know, we're no strangers to droughts or heat waves or dust storms. We know them pretty well and pretty intimately. And the farmers that I know in the far west, they're also super keen to look after these beautiful environments in far western New South Wales. And, you know, we are all looking after, you know, the vegetation, our livestock. We support the rural communities which we're surrounded by. And so we're constantly looking at how to look after the environment, the animals and the people that we work amongst. The situation that Broken Hill finds itself in, Nanika, is... uh... Well, the wind farm at Silverton, the solar farm, uh, AGL, uh, made the announcement earlier this year about the large storage battery. We've ran the story now on and off for a while about Hydro Store wanting to establish a compressed air facility just outside of Broken Hill. From your point of view, um, and like I know I went to the council meeting Wednesday night and they're trumpeting Broken Hill as a renewable centre of Australia. Do you believe these are the right steps forward or do we need to do a bit more? Well, these are absolutely, you know, great steps forward. And it's actually really exciting to see the Broken Hill community putting its hand up and going, yeah, we want to be part of these projects of the future because that will secure the jobs of the future and the income flow and keep, you know, young people in town. So it's really wonderful that we are talking about, you know, what projects we can be involved with going forward. Obviously, the climate crisis, like it is a big problem. There's no denying that. And so we, you know, as a community, as a nation, as a global society, really need to, you know, do as much as we can. So we prevent these, you know, the the climate disruptions that we are seeing Broken Hill Grazier author and agricultural scientist Anika Molesworth speaking with Andrew Schmidt. And uh, while we're talking about Broken Hill region and the rain, the barrier highway between Broken Hill and Coburn is closed due to water over the road. So if you are looking at driving the barrier highway, do keep across some of those movements uh, on the New South Wales uh, transport page as well as uh, the South Australian one as well. It's 20 past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Before we get to weather, uh, another issue that uh, has affected agriculture, perhaps not in a way that uh, you would think when it comes to rain, a citrus expert says that more needs to be done to help growers interpret weather data to prevent albedo breakdown. Now, albedo breakdown causes the skin or the rind of citrus fruit to crack, and it's been a 
big problem this year across the Riverland, Riverina and Sunraysia regions. Former CSIRO research scientist Michael Treby spoke to Eliza Burlash about the discussions he's been having with growers about where to go from here. Been bad everywhere, and but what I've been talking to them about is really what our, you know, what was the development, what were the steps behind, you know, what was the knowledge we developed in order to arrive at a calcium spray program, and then how we compared calcium to gibberellic acid. So just, and it was to really to show them that um, this wasn't some ancient history that uh, wasn't well founded. It was quite substantially founded uh, with, with lots of um, measurements and, and fairly solid trials being conducted to arrive at a, at a, at a calcium spray program that, that confirmed some degree of control for the problem as we saw the, the uh, as, as we saw it being caused here and, and that was a, a rather tiny little uh, calcium deficiency in the cell wall material of the albedo tissue. So the current treatments that are available weren't sufficient to deal with the colder and wetter season this year? Or citrus? We, we don't know whether it's a colder and wetter season. Some years ago, we, we also conducted a survey and asked growers what they thought was the conditions associated with a higher incidence or lower incidence, and half of them said colder, wetter, and the other half said warmer, drier. So we're not exactly too certain what that what it means. But, but as you say, as you allude to, the reason for it does probably lie in the climate somewhere. We're just not too sure how. So we're probably better off just not quite speculating about that just yet until we've got some, well, until the industry has more facts available. But yeah, growers have, have told us that, yes, that they did the normal things they do, you know, calcium or, or GA, and it just wasn't enough this season. So that sort of points to a fairly major, uh, significant deficiency in our knowledge of, of what to do. And, and what I've been talking to them about, well, if, if somehow they could work out how, you know, what the triggers were, what were the environmental circumstances, the climate, that particular season, weather pattern or whatever you'd like to call it, they might be able to come up with some sort of warning such that, you know, it looks like it's going to be an albedo, a bad albedo breakdown. You'll need to get your measures in place or it's probably not going to be so bad, you know, do whatever, back off or only need to apply it to those those patches where it's, it's a problem regularly. But also, I've tried to highlight to industry we stopped being involved at CSIRO in the late 2000s when there was another problem that, that uh, came up with it was post-harvest rhyme breakdown. And so we had to refocus our resources. But the problem hasn't gone away elsewhere in the world either. So there's a, probably a fair amount of research out there that needs to be looked at and reviewed, mindful of what the conditions are here in Australia, uh, with a view to seeing what you know, what's in it and what could be applied locally or what could be trialled locally. And I also tried to talk, uh, suggest that maybe some investment in, in trying to interrogate the weather data that we have uh, across the three uh, regions and, you know, in some cases fairly detailed weather data, you know, and by that I mean lots and lots of measuring points around the whole region, might point us in the right direction for that sort of climate marker, if you like, that would tell growers to, yeah, get your act together or uh, maybe back off a little bit. Yes, yeah, so would could be uh, if that, you know, if that research was able to be interrogated and, and collated, I mean, so... so I guess the idea would be that maybe growers could could look to say the Bureau of Meteorology um, for things like you know when you see a warning about downing mildew or um, a frost risk for sheep like that kind of conditions they'd be able to put a warning out like that. Is that what you're saying might be a helpful idea? Yes, that's that's exactly what I'm, I'm suggesting. Although in the case of albedo breakdown, it's not necessarily a once-off sort of event here, like a frost, which tends to be fairly episodic. It, it's probably more sustained cool temperatures or sustained high temperatures. We don't really know, but that's the way I think it, it'd probably pan out. If that 
linkage can be established. And remember, we've you know we've we've had a few years in between where the problem hasn't been so bad. We had a period in the um, 19, 1990s, early two thousands, where the problem was more widespread and more sustained. And we've had just had this local this incidence more recently. So it does give us a, a few more data points to try and tease out some sort of relationship. We also should remember that though these weather data or well, the data sets are, are enormously complex and the permutations and combinations of, of temperature and relative humidity and, and so forth are almost limitless. But the science around interrogating those data sets, so, you know, data science, if you like, has, has advanced a fair amount in, in those two or three decades. And computing power now is far cheaper than it was back in the period that I was, I was directly involved in, in that research. So I think it, it's sort of it's, it's probably a good spot now to have a bit of a think about an investment in that area. Former CSIRO research scientist Michael Treby speaking with Eliza Berlage. Text in 19 mils at Putra. Doesn't sound like that was a particularly good outcome for the text. So there you can keep those texts coming, 0467 or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one to get a sense of what is coming our way. Tom Bowick from the Bureau of Meteorology joins me. Good afternoon. Hello there, Cassie. It's going to be freezing tomorrow. I'm, I'm very put <laughs> out by this. Yes. Uh, well, look, uh, obviously we had the system that came through yesterday, the uh, low-pressure system that extended a, a cold front uh, over the state and there was some uh, yeah, quite significant weather around in terms of uh, rainfall totals uh, uh, up through parts of the northeast pastoral. There some totals in excess of 30 millimetres and through the mid-north also there were some totals in the 20 to 30 millimetre range. Uh, even down in the southeast, we had 22 millimetres there at, uh, at Narracourt. So, uh, yeah, certainly a fair bit of activity around uh, but yeah, that system, uh, the low pressure system, is now on its way to the south of Tasmania, and the front is still through the northeast of our state. So uh, uh, there is a bit of activity still uh, in the northeast uh, in terms of thunderstorm activity associated with that particular system. Um, now uh, to the west, we are starting to see the effects of uh, a cold pool and a, and a cold front sort of moving into the western parts of the state, where the um, the showers are sort of starting to increase again. Uh, but uh, yeah, there certainly are still showers around the agricultural area at this point in time, and into the south of the the pastoral districts as well but uh, yeah an increase being felt in the west there with that next system uh, moving across uh, and that will be uh, moving eastwards um, uh, continue to move eastwards so uh, uh, and following that there will be some cooler still air or colder still air so uh, um, yeah showers will be, be continuing on Tuesday with that uh, that system moving through and um, even some isolated thunderstorms and possible small hail for the agricultural area pretty unusual for uh, First day of November there, much uh, with temperatures significantly below average uh, uh, expected for uh, for Tuesday. So pretty well cold through much of the state, maybe grading to mild in the very far north, but uh, generally a very cold day for early in uh, November. And winds will be continuing fresh, strong and gusty northwest to southwesterly. Um, should be becoming southwesterly um, throughout uh, uh, during the day. Now, uh, it Conditions will be starting to ease for the, the middle to later part of the week. Uh, still some showers for the agricultural area on Wednesday there, um, but less likely in the north. Um, 
and uh, the showers probably more frequent about the southern agriculture area and for windward coast and ranges. Could still be some small hail uh, for the lower southeast at first Wednesday. Those showers continue to ease for Thursday and Friday. Uh, by the time we get to later on Friday, um, the showers will have cleared away completely and uh, temperatures rising slowly. Cool in the south, grading to mild in the north For uh, uh, by the time we get to later Friday. The weekend actually looks dry and starting to warm up actually and mostly sunny. Temperatures uh, even rising to hot in the far west of the state on Sunday and Monday. Uh, some isolated showers developing in the west on Monday with possible thunderstorms in the far northwest. Now the rainfall totals now still left till the end of Friday. Generally 5 to 15 millimetres but less than 2 millimetres over the north of the pastoral districts. Some higher totals of 15 to 40 millimetres expect about parts of the southern agricultural area, the remaining coasts and over the ranges in the mid-north and the southern Flinders ranges. Local heavy falls of 40 to 70 millimetres possible for the Mount Lottie ranges and also the southern Flinders ranges there. Cassie? Thanks for that, Matt. Uh, <laughs> John Bowick there from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be partly cloudy tomorrow, but there is a high chance of showers in the south. Uh, there could be a thunderstorm around as well, and winds are going to get up to 40 to 60 k's an hour. Overnight, it will get down to 9 to 13 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach 17 to 21 degrees. The lower western will be partly cloudy. Again, a high chance of th- showers, possibly a thunderstorm in the east. Overnight, down to 9, but daytime temperatures reaching 15 to 18. For more stories from across the country, go to ABC net.net.au slash rural On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. Now is your idea of a summer indulgence, uh, champagne and oysters? Well, you might not be in that much luck this year. It's been a year since a virus shut down the Coffin Bay oyster industry and uh, soon you'll hear how the oyster growers have recovered from that uh, devastating event and what it could mean for summer this year. Oysters are a seasonal product and they're not actually in season at Christmas. And so we celebrate the seasonality of oysters and I think across the board, Australia-wide, particularly in South Australia, a lot of people are getting close to selling out and they're probably quite happy about that in case some Vibrio cases pop up. It was uh, a year, basically, this time last year that those Vibrio cases started coming through. So we'll have a look at what is going on a year on from that. And this cold weather, this unseasonably cold weather that we're experiencing this week comes right when South Australia's vegetable industry is turbocharged. So I'll catch up with a grower on the Northern Adelaide Plains a year on from when the hailstones, uh, hailstorm did so much damage there as well and see how things are recovering on the Northern Adelaide Plains as well. But first, we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, a 15-year-old Adelaide boy who allegedly possessed extremist material and coached others online about how to make bombs will be sentenced as an adult. Prosecutors had asked the youth court to sentence the boy, who can't be named for legal reasons, as an adult, where a bigger penalty could be imposed. Judge Penny Eldridge today allowed that application, which means that he faces a maximum of 15 years' detention instead of three. The state government has ordered an urgent review of a proposed National Aboriginal Art and Cultural Gallery at Adelaide's Lot 14. Premier Peter Malinowskis says the cost of building the Centre for First Nations Cultures has blown out by more than $50 million. And the RSPCA is launching a desperate recruitment drive with shelters across the state inundated with animals. The organisation says it needs at least 120 more volunteers to help care for 900 animals, with nearly half of those at the Lonsdale Shelter. More news at one o'clock. 
Thanks so much for that, uh, Matt Coleman there with the news headlines. Now, uh, on October 28, last year, I headed out to Chris Mussolino's property and there I found cauliflower that looked like it had been shot. There was uh, damage everywhere and there were glass and, and all sorts of things it had devastated the Northern Adelaide Plains. It was that hailstorm that came through and did thousands of dollars worth of damage. Now, in the the year since then, it's been a very topsy-turvy year for vegetable growers. So I thought we might touch base with Chris Mussolino to see how he's going a year on. Good afternoon. Hi, Cassie. How are you? I'm well, thanks. So I remember catching up with you. You were a little bit shell-shocked when I I caught up with you, um, not quite this time last year, a couple of days ago, this time last year, because you you were actually out in the paddock, I believe, when the hailstorm came through. Yeah, that's right. We were harvesting um, cauliflowers and lettuce and it came through and, yeah, it it wasn't much fun to get hit by them, that's for sure. Now, vegetables grow rather quickly. How long did it take for you to... Not, not so much recover from, but but at least be able to move on from that hailstorm. Oh, they probably there was probably an eight week cycle there where um, we were sort of trying to s- cipher through what the damage was and how how we were affected because it didn't just affect the stuff that was ready. It affected because we plant every week. It affected um, the next ones coming on, so they all got damaged throughout. Yeah, so an eight to ten week period there where it was it was pretty hard going. And that obviously has a, a huge impact on your bottom line because you're such a tight margin business. Was there any ability to recoup any of that lost money? Not really because you, you, by the time you went through and tried to get the right ones and then what had been damaged that you couldn't see and then as we was getting back to the packing sheds and it was breaking down on shelves. So it was a pretty much cut your losses type of scenario where you said, look, we can try, but it's probably going to make more headaches than it's going to be worth. Lettuce jumped in price as a result of that and other issues interstate as well, um, with uh, Queensland unable to, to sow due to the rainfall there. Were yep. you able to capitalise on, on the unfortunate situation being seen in the east as a result? So that through that period where Queensland got flooded, we sort of were lucky. Well, maybe that someone was looking down because maybe it was our turn where they, they won last year when we had the trouble. We sort of were okay this year. So um, we sort of recouped a fair bit through that period. We're probably not going to cover what we lost last year because you don't expect the demand. The, the phones were ringing off the, off the tap. It was crazy back then. Um, and it... You sort of recoup a little bit, but we were able to capitalise on it, yeah. It might not be quite as stark as flooding and an inability to sow, but this has been a very cold spring. Now, I've spoken to a lot of grain producers about how their season is a couple of weeks behind where they would normally be at this time of year, but how are things looking on veggie farms? Yeah, we, uh, we through winter we probably got delayed because of all the rain. It rained every single week, and we thought we're a little bit behind on our planting schedule. So we were we sort of covering into that now. So harvesting is pretty full on at the moment. So we're probably cutting stuff we should have been cutting two weeks ago, um, but we're cutting it into the later, which worked out okay because we were so late. The varietals, um, the varieties change throughout the the seasons. Um, so we go from a winter into a spring into a summer varieties on things, and we were we were probably a little bit late on getting some of them in. We sort of rolled the dice um, on them, and we were lucky enough that it stayed cold because if it didn't, we would have been in some sort of trouble. Trouble in that everything would have come on at once, or trouble is in if we don't get the right weather for the right variety or stuff, 
we're not it's not going to do anything it's so for example we've got cold weather now we shouldn't have this cold weather so we're planting varieties now that should be getting warm weather so the main concern moving into the into the next few months is are we going to get anything out of those varieties because they're expecting warmth 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 and they're getting cold and well yesterday's 28 today is 15 16 so they're getting all sorts of shocks so they don't know whether it's cold or it's hot or what it is so it's um there's a little bit of there's a little bit of messing around to do there and you know if we need to get some warm weather at some stage I think anyone with a veggie garden at home probably has seen the effects of this as well, but I've had an issue in my own garden with bolting. A lot of plants in my veggie patch have just gone crazy, grown really fast, and the the bok choy is not really edible. The spinach is gone. Do you ever suffer from bolting where the plants just grow out of control? Absolutely. So that's part of the um, that's part of the weather program, the the weather cycle. Obviously, that's a a warmer variety, and it's not getting what it wants, and it's just saying, oh, no way, I'm not, um, I'm going to do stupid stuff because it's it's just going to go straight up." So we get that similar things into lettuce. If we go into the wrong time slots with them, we'll get a bolting. Um, if like, like for example, moving into the the summer now, or we're supposed to be into the warmer months. Um, if we're planting still the varieties we are planting to try and get some warmth and it's only cold, we're going to get either it's a tip burn or a bolting or something else will happen because it's it's just not in the climate that it's supposed to be in I'm speaking for this time of year. I'm speaking to Northern Adelaide Plains vegetable grower Christmas Alino. With your season being a bit behind, what, what actually do you have in at the moment? What's coming on from the Adelaide Plains at the moment? So there's plenty of cauliflower, broccoli, lettuce, and we grow cabbage as well. So um, all four lines are pretty strong at the moment. There's not um, there's not much uh, delay in the market. Anything should be available and ready to go. It's quite finely balanced, though, around the country, though, where each growing region slots into its own little time frame so that you, yep. you all get a chance at the market. Are you finding this late season is going to mean you crash into another market? Well, that's what's happening at the moment, absolutely. So broccoli and lettuce, for example, are flooded throughout Australia at the moment. So it's it's made it really, really hard, you know. So Queensland is still cutting heavily, Victoria's cutting heavily, we're cutting heavily, you know, and you've got you've got that overlap of supply which should see um, cheap prices everywhere. Well, hopefully you are able to, to find your niche and uh, are able to hit the markets, given this time last year it was uh, absolute uh, chaos and to trying to recover. Yeah. So hopefully this year you're able to make up for it. Absolutely. As, as cheap as it gets this year, it can't be as bad as last year's hailstorm. Well, I'll let you get back to it. I know you're very busy, so thanks for, for stopping by. All right, thanks a lot. Christmas Alino, a vegetable grower on the Northern Adelaide Plains there. They uh, had a power of damage this time last year. Just uh, every plant had some sort of hole in it. So it's good to hear that they've been able to recover. But everything, uh, the plants, the people are all noticing just how cool it is for this time of year, unseasonably cool weather. If you've had um, some issues with your veggie patches like I have where plants have just started bolting because they have been unhappy with the way the weather's going let me know let me know what's actually happened with your veggie patches text me zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one
And we're going to keep following a story that was big news last week after the budget. It seems dam money has been reallocated by the federal government so that water can be brought back from irrigators and reallocated to the environment. The federal government won't say how much funding has been committed to a new fund established in last week's federal budget to meet these water saving commitments across the Murray Bay, Darling Basin, though. But Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek has confirmed that the new fund contains money the previous coalition government had planned to spend on dams. National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan spoke with Ms Pippersek and began by asking how much funding the government has set aside for buybacks in this financial year. Well, we have set money aside to um, achieve the, the goals of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and there is uh, an amount of money that is listed as not for publication in the budget. That won't be just for buybacks, it will be for other water projects that will help us meet our goals as well. And there's a very good reason that it's not for publication. Anybody who walks into a negotiation, uh, they're trying to buy something or they're trying to get a state government to put some money into a plan, if you telegraph how much you're willing to spend up front, you're not going to get value for money. The Water for Environment Special Accounts Review suggested it could cost up to $11 billion to recover the 450 gigalitres. That's leaving aside the 605 gigalitres that is expected from state-run projects. Is $11 billion a ballpark figure that taxpayers can expect? No, and uh, we're certainly not uh, contemplating spending that sort of money. Nowhere near it. Uh, We think that we can get much better value and, and The reason we can get much better value is because um, voluntary buybacks are on the table, as I have said from the very beginning. Nothing is off the table. Mandatory buybacks? We're not talking about that at all at the moment. We've still got um, a a great deal of work to do with states and territories about mapping how we get to um, the full implementation of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. I'm expecting to meet with water ministers again early in the new year. Uh, They have promised to look at the projects they've got underway in their states and um, territory and Uh, we're very happy to work with them cooperatively on water efficiency projects and other approaches. But voluntary buybacks really do have to be on the table as part of the solution. So when would the Commonwealth re-enter the market for those buybacks? Well, I'm not going to um, be discussing details like that yet. We still have a way to go. We want to be cooperative with the states and territories. If great projects come up, if great offers come forward, uh, then I want to be in a position to take up those offers. This week we saw the Commonwealth scrap um, or postpone funding for dams. Will any of that money be reallocated to water buybacks? Uh, Well, in fact, some of the money that has been set aside in the not-for-publication line has come from uh, the cancellation uh, of a couple of dam projects and the reprofiling or the the delay um, of some other dam projects as well. And and the the dam projects are interesting in themselves. We we had a government that was in power for nine years, promised a hundred dams and built two. One of those was nine gigalitres, the other one was 16. So not two very small dams in fact, out of the hundred they promised. So they talk a big game on dams but they are pretty poor at delivering. 2% success rate on what they promised. Okay, speaking of delivery, you're committed to finding 450 gigalitres of water that was promised in addition to the Murray-Darling Basin plan. What's the point of acquiring that water for the environment if it, in fact, can't be delivered due to constraints? We're working with the states and territories very cooperatively on uh, on constraints measures as well, uh, supply measures, on 
um, improvements to the efficient use of water in partnership with irrigation companies in some cases. We are absolutely uh, looking at all of the ways we can get to the full delivery of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Nothing's off the table. I've said on multiple occasions that the goal is clear, but I'm agnostic about the pathway. Just still on the buybacks, if I was an irrigator that had been considering selling permanent water entitlement, why would I put that on the market now, knowing that the Commonwealth could be about to re-enter and offer a premium? Aren't you concerned that you've already flagged um, something that could perhaps interrupt the market? Well, no, I'm not concerned about that because we've heard claims already from the opposition that uh, the fact that the Commonwealth might be a buyer somehow distorts the market. The opposition were prepared to engage in buybacks when they were in government. In fact, when Barnaby Joyce was the Water Minister, he spent $80 million buying water entitlements from a fund that was based in the Cayman Islands and set up by Angus Taylor. Do you need the support of the states to buy back water, either to meet the 450 target or uh, other shortfalls across the Basin Plan? I'd like the cooperation of the states to achieve the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, which they say they want to do, and I want to work cooperatively with them. They also say they don't want water buybacks. Well, I'm um, I'm not going to start negotiating through the media. We've already seen great steps forward uh, since the Labor government came to power. I believe state water ministers, when they say they want to work cooperatively, to deliver. Are you still working towards that June 2024 deadline? Well, we are still working to the June 2024 deadline. The previous government tied up the Murray-Darling Basin Plan in brown tape. They deliberately sabotaged the delivery of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Uh, They didn't want to achieve it. They say they do, but if you judge them on their action, they did everything they could to slow or derail the delivery of the plan. Could you negotiate the state's support for water buybacks by offering an extension of one or two years on on the state-run projects? Again, I'm not going to do negotiations like that through the media. Our last water minister's meeting a couple of weeks ago was very successful, very cooperative, Uh, There was a very strong spirit uh, of people wanting to work together to deliver on the plan. I'm going to focus on working quietly, methodically and sensibly with the other water ministers to deliver. Tanya Plibersek, the Federal Environment and Water Minister, speaking with Kath Sullivan. And I've had a text in from Dean from Middleton asking how much water entitlements on the Murray-Darling Basin are owned by overseas owners without owning any farms. Uh, and uh, so looking at the ownership of the water. Thanks so much for that text. Also a text on the uh, on the plants bolting. Now I know why spring plants Bolt, says Alex from Bordertown. I always thought they did it because of the sun, but it seems they're just confused when it's too cold. So interesting. It is interesting. I mean, uh, I think I'm just a novice, but I'm glad to know that even the professionals uh, uh, do struggle with bolting from time to time as well. So uh, keep your texts coming, 0467 922 891 or phone 1300 888 It's coming up to 13 minutes to 1. Let's talk about the birds and the bees. The November issue of ABC Gardening Australia magazine is celebrating pollinators with great advice on how to attract them into your backyard. Learn how to design and plant a courtyard and take a look at a rose garden that's 50 years in the making. Get tips on growing sweet corn, prep your garden for summer and discover the truth about companion planting. Gardening Australia magazine, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au. 
You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. A few uh, year milestones. This time it's oysters. It's been almost a year since oyster growers were hit with the news that bays would be shut and sales stopped when an outbreak of the Vibrio virus occurred. Thousands of oysters had to be destroyed, causing a huge economic impact to the industry. But things are looking up and oyster growers have had a great season with plenty of oyster sales once again. Brooke Nindorf caught up with Carly Thompson from Gazander Oysters about last year's difficulties, but also speaking about how the season 22 has gone. Once we had everything reopened and started 2022, we've had a really, really good season. Um, market demand has been incredible and we've actually had a really awesome, consistent year with conditioning and growth. So we're, we're pretty chuffed, but probably feel like we deserved it a little bit too. So how did the Vibrio um, issues affect you guys? In a lot of ways. First of all, there was a recall issued and our bays were shut down, so we had to find all stock that had gone into the market going back a number of weeks. I think it was almost six weeks and find what existed still in the market frozen and fresh and it had to be destroyed and that had to be at our cost. Um, We had to report everything through um, Perza and Fazans and then all that money that we had spent um, sorry, all the money that we would have received for those oysters we then had to refund and not only that, it takes us 18 months to grow a good oyster so we've significantly invested in that product before it hits a consumer so we've got labour, freight, licensing everything that we need to run this business was in the toilet essentially Did you this year have much to catch up to get sales back up to where they were? It was always a risk that the consumer wouldn't be as confident with the product but we found that they bounced back really quite quickly and those who love oysters love oysters and are quite willing to assess their own risk before they'll consume and the market demand has been really great around Australia. Unfortunately that is a little bit because the rock oysters are having a really hard time and Tasmania has some really big weather events and they've been shut a bit so that increases demand in SA so we're fortunate for that but we feel for those guys a lot because it's tough. We got to go out today with with, uh, with you and, and Steve. What was the what were the jobs today? Basically, today is just a harvest day. We're not really doing anything else. But first, we there were some oysters that we wanted to clean up a little bit to sell next week or the following week. So we moved them to a different part of the lease to hit some wind this weekend to just clean off any muck on it, condition the edge of the shell up so it's nice and hard and consistent for transport and adjusted some lines. And then we've basically harvested what's going out today to market. So these oysters today are heading into far north Queensland, Sydney and Melbourne. So we'll process them today, refrigerate overnight, and then we'll start the shipping process tomorrow and they will hit wholesalers early next week and plates that week. Following Vibrio, what sort of changes did you have to make here at the shed and out on the leases? Um, So there's a number of protocols that we had to tighten. Like the oyster industry itself, through our licensing, um, PERS and our food safety team, we had some really tight restrictions, but what we did is we pulled them even tighter. So nothing leaves our shed or our facility until we have chilled it down to internal muscle temperature of under 10 degrees, and that's for an unshucked oyster. So we've had to buy, we've bought a chiller container so we can do that here on site. We've also just recently purchased a chiller truck. So we're now controlling our process that we tick all the boxes, harvest-wise, time-wise, sediment, up-welling, 
um, tidal patterns, etc., etc., as well as the tightening of those temperature controls before we hand it over into our cold chain. Not long after it happened, I spoke with you about uh, consumer education. You saw someone just leave oysters sitting out in the sun and, and that was one of the concerns. What have you found since then? Do you think education has got better and consumers are knowing more about what they need to do to, to have their oysters at the right temperature? I certainly hope so. We've spent a lot of time industry-wise and probably each business educating the people that we sell to, whether it's farm gate or pop-up shops or the wholesaler. For that, a lot of our invoicing and tagging is very particular. Lots of social media stuff. The industry's worked really hard on some postcards that go out with some stock. So it's better if people are willing to be open to that. But at the end of the day, you know, like the dairy farmer doesn't take you come home with you to make sure you put the milk in the fridge. Like it's all common sense around food safety. We don't put chicken on a bench. We don't leave milk in our car. We we get it into the fridge really quite quickly. And that's even more important with all fresh seafood, particularly raw, including oysters. We're very conscious of it, but whether at the end game in Queensland, Melbourne, Sydney, wherever you are, Perth consuming an oyster, you might forget that that's important. In saying that though, we don't have a Vibrio risk for oyster product that's been cooked. So if you've cooked your stuff, it's a little bit like meat. You, you'll kill some bacteria in it, in it, particularly the Vibrio one. So heating it for two minutes above 75 degrees does kill that bacteria and then reduces risk. Carly, just been out today uh, harvesting again. You'll sort these oysters, send them off for sale. But heading into to Christmas in the next few months, oyster availability, what's that going to be like? Well, first of all, oysters are a seasonal product and they're not actually in season at Christmas. As much as we want to drink champagne and eat oysters in the summer, it's not really ideal. We do have a non-sporting triploid oyster, but there's low stock numbers and they'll probably be sold prior to Christmas. So our business, we will be shut down for sales within the month. We're just dripping some last bits out to some wholesalers. We've decided this year to sell our oysters when there was demand for it and make the money as opposed to drip feeding out for the whole year because we're risk adverse now. We've had enough trouble that you can only sell an oyster and get paid for it once. So we've done that. And so we celebrate the seasonality of oysters and I think across the board, Australia-wide, particularly in South Australia, a lot of people are getting close to selling out and they're probably quite happy about that in case some Vibrio cases pop up. So it's a risk mitigation to choose not to sell or not to sell as much should you get into a position where you get a bay closure or a recall which then actually costs you money and creates additional work and consumer confidence that we don't want. Because it is those sort of warmer months that Vibrio seems to be around. Bacteria loves heat, whether it's ambient or cooking or, or leaving stuff out. So, yeah, put your food in the fridge. Carly Thompson from Gazanda Oysters speaking there with Brooke Nindorf and some good advice. Put your oysters in the fridge. You can read more on that story online as well. But while we're talking seafood, the rock lobster industry has really struggled this year. Uh, opening dates, international markets and fee reductions are all on the radar. Fishing began early this year on September 1st rather than later in the month. Nathan Kimber, Executive Officer of the Southeastern Professional Fishers Association, told Karen Hunt this gave the industry more time to address marketing their catch. Yeah, it's been widely reported that the market 
conditions uh, for the past sort of two to three seasons have been really uncertain for our fishery and for our species. And, you know, time, I think, over that period and even, you know, into this season was the fishery's best friend to make sure that we could essentially find a market and trade the quota that we needed to trade. Look, I, I would say yes. The more time we had this season to catch the quota, the better. Set for in the coming months, need to consider a recommendation essentially to PERSA around a start date for not just next season, but for seasons moving forward. We need a more permanent arrangement. The last three seasons we've either started on the 15th of September or the 1st of September. And yeah, we certainly need to provide PERSA and the fleet as well with some more certainty around the start date for our seasons moving forward. So we'll be considering that and considering advice to PERSA injury course is there a clear favourite date at this point? No, I don't think so. Sardi are preparing advice notes um, for the fishery to consider around stock implications of potentially opening the season early on a more permanent basis. And we'll also consider a range of economic information that we have recorded over the past three seasons of, of starting earlier. How are the numbers looking in the ocean itself? Essentially, we assess the performance of the stock based on a range of performance indicators. The most critical of these essentially is catch rate. So that's the amount of legal-sized lobsters um, that fishers um, catch per pot lift they undertake on a, on a daily basis. And catch rates in the fishery have been trending upwards for the past sort of five to six seasons. So the stock is probably in as good a condition right now as it has been for some sort of 20 years with the direct market to China still closed, are there other export markets that have opened up? The fishery is currently exporting to a range of Southeast Asian markets, um, you know, Vietnam, Taiwan, Hong Kong and Singapore. Like, Obviously, we are extremely keen to re-engage with China and to start exporting to China again. And you know, we note that the new federal government look like they're doing uh, what they can at the moment to try and you know, address issues associated with trade to China. What are the fishermen telling you about prospects for the future? Are they feeling comfortable with the current situation? Look, it's been challenging in the past two and a half seasons in particular. Got no doubt about that. There, there's obviously a range of different financial and economic situations that exist in the small businesses that operate within our fishery. And so... You know, it certainly impacted some more than others. The gross value of production of the fishery has probably dropped by about sort of somewhere in the vicinity of 30 to 35% over the past two seasons. And, you know, that is ultimately driven by what the beach price is. Beach prices can remain sort of around that $50 a kilo mark and above. Then I think, you know, the vast majority of fishers will get through this period. What we've seen, especially in the last couple of weeks, seems to be relatively positive around where those beach prices are. Has government assistance in the way of uh, reduced fees and charges continued? Yep, so 50% reduction in licence fees for this current financial year. In the next two or three months, SEPFA uh, will be sitting down with government and renegotiating our cross-recovery programs. Yeah, all of those discussions will occur over the next two to three months around you know, what that program looks like moving forward.
Nathan Kimber, SEPFA's Executive Officer, speaking there. One last text from Di from Poochera on the vegetables. She's saying, you can understand the growers' pain. We had hail last year. All our home apples were damaged, hail bruised, and the harvest of them was non-existent. So if it was a commercial crop, it would have been a total wipeout. So, yes, sympathise with the veggie farmers and croppers with all this rain around. Thanks so much for your text. We can keep having a chat tomorrow on the Country Hour. Right now, though, we're approaching 1 o'clock. Time for news. There are so many ways to keep informed. Safe heritage listing does provide some important protection. It doesn't prevent any development on the parkland. Leading news and current affairs. ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.